Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. J is for Mick Jagger. Yeah, so Mick Jagger, let's start with a Jagger stroke Bowie timeline here, going back to June or July 1963, when Bowie is invited to the office of Eric Easton, who was then the Stones manager, uh, is raised also as a possibility of being potentially the Conrad's manager at that Mm. point, uh, whilst he was there. Mick Jagger dropped in whilst Bowie was there, which clearly impressed the young David Jones no end. Right, OK, and whilst we're on the subject, the Conrads did record a demo for Easton, who then offers it to Decca Records. Who didn't want no, it? No, didn't want it. They weren't bothered, were they? Uh, the 5th of July, 1969, Space Oddity is giving its first public airing, now, I didn't know this, over the PA system at the Rolling Stones' legendary Hyde Park concert. Wow. And Bowie isn't there to witness it. What Funny enough, my my wife, Trace, yeah. her grandfolks were there. So really? she they said they, they both passed away now, sadly, right. but they would both have heard uh, Space Oddity before 19... 99.9% recurring oh, of the world's population. That's remarkable. So we're not entirely sure how much cross-pollination there was over the years. Not much by the uh, by the look of it. So mm. we'll move on to April 1973 and, of course, the release of Aladdin Sane, which features Bowie's version of the Stones' Let's Spend the Night Together. And Jagger gets his mention in Driving Saturday, doesn't he, when people stared in Jagger's eyes and scored? Yeah, so the 12th of May 1973, Mick Jagger attends a disastrous Earl's Court show at the beginning of the Aladdin Sane mm. tour. We've done a, its own section. It was that uh, disastrous. Uh, Possibly as much to check out the venue as David's show. Possibly, because he yeah. was just coming into the frame. That was the very first show to be held yeah. at Earl's Court. That's right. Slade were already booked in, thought mm. they were going to be the first one. Bowie was a guinea pig. It failed. Uh, did the Stones ever play there? I think they may have done it. Oh, possibly. Very possibly. Yeah, OK, so 3rd of July, 1973, Jagger attends the end of tour party in London. And he sits alongside Lou Reed and Bowie, of course. This is the night that Bowie and Reed uh, had a massive dust-up. This was supposedly over Reed's uh, drug use, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, neither are here to defend themselves no. now, are they? But the, the story was that, uh, yeah, they all looks very cosy at one point. There's a famous uh, photograph where it was suggested that uh, Bowie was kissing Lou Reed, but he was just leaning across Mick Jagger and trying to communicate with yeah. him. It, it is how it really looks. Yes. Uh, but the story being that, uh, I don't know, David Bowie was talking about producing uh, Lou Reed's next album mm. and suggested that maybe he cleaned up his act, at which point Lou Reed went absolutely bonkers. Uh, yeah, but anyway. Uh, so, the, yeah, that, that famous photo got by Mick Rock. You That's right. Check it out. Yeah, OK. So moving on to the 14th of August, 1973. This is a Mick Jagger interview in Melody Maker, and he says, I think David Bowie is sincere, and I like what he does. It would be a lie to say his image is all hype. I don't think in three years' time we'll be laughing at what he does because he's done it better than anyone else. Prophetic. Yeah, and they ended up being really good friends, actually. In March 1974, Jagger commissions Belgian artist Guy Pilart to do the artwork for the next Stones LP, It's Only Rock and Roll. Yeah. He shows rock dreams to Bowie, who jumps in first and gets Diamond Dogs Commission we have this. Yeah, we do, don't we? So now let's skip forward another couple of decades here. 12th of August, 1985, Bowie and Jagger released their version of Dancing in the Street, which was, uh, well, you know, raising money for Live Aid famine relief, of course, wasn't it? Yeah, so the original plan was to perform a track together live with Bowie performing at Wembley Stadium and Jagger at John F. Kennedy Stadium. That would be fraught with disaster, wouldn't it? And they did realise that a satellite link-up would cause a half-second delay which would throw everything out. Uh, So they were 
were talking at one point in time, which seems ridiculous, as either Bowie or Jagger miming on the other end and covering up the mouth with the microphone, and neither wanted to do it, as you can imagine, because you, you would be the one ridiculed, wouldn't you? And in, in front of the biggest world oh. audience for music ever at that point in time. Not even worth trying. And so, and of course, the song is Dancing in the Street, and in 1968, Jagger and Keith Richard had already borrowed their line from the song in Street Fighting Man, because summer's here and the time is right for fighting in the street. Yeah, OK, so in June 1985, Bowie was recording his contributions to the Absolute Beginners soundtrack at Abbey Road, and so Jagger arranged to fly in to record the track there. A rough mix of the tune was completed in just four hours. 13 hours after the start of recording, the song and the video were completed. Jagger arranged for some minor musical overdubs with Steve Thompson and uh, Michael Barbiero in New York. I mean, you've got to say, I know this was done for Live Aid and the rest of it, but on an artistic level, it's neither of their finest moments, is it, this this tune? No, uh, but that is irrelevant, isn't yeah, it? I mean, like, it is. like you say, I mean, and it is good fun, and you can see that on the video they're just having a yeah. great time. But uh, this is from Rolling Stone magazine. I can't remember how I met David, uh, this is Jagger, which is weird, but we used to hang out in London a lot in the early days of the 70s. We were at a lot of parties together. He would come round my house and play me all his music. I remember him playing me different mixes of Gene Genie, which was really kind of stonesy in a way. That's what I enjoyed, watching him develop as an artist. Yeah, he goes on to say there was always an exchange of information within our friendship, and I suppose there was always an element of competition between us, but it never felt overwhelming. When he'd come over, we'd talk about our work, a new guitarist, a new way of writing, style of photographers, that kind of thing. We had a lot in common in wanting to do big things on stage using interesting designs, narratives and personalities. Yeah, OK, and he, he said, uh, this is great. He'd always look at my clothes labels. When he would see me, he'd give me a big hug and I could feel him going up behind my collar of my shirt to see what I was wearing. <laughs> mm, Ted Baker. Then he used to copy me sometimes, but he'd be very honest about it. If he took one of your moves, he'd say, that's one of yours. I just tried it. I don't mind sharing things with him because he would share so much with me. It was a two-way street. Well, let's be honest here, because, you know, Jagger took so much from James Brown and, and Charlie and there's Fox and all those people, didn't he? You know, all that's, everybody borrows don't they? Yeah. Uh, Jagger said later, we were very close in the 80s in New York. We'd hang out a lot and go to dance clubs. We were very influenced by the New York downtown scene back then. That's why Let's Dance is my favourite song of his. It reminds me of those times and it has such a great groove. He had a chameleon-like ability to take on any genre, always with a unique take musically and lyrically. I wonder what Bowie made of the chameleon reference there. He wouldn't have liked that one bit, no. would he? And uh, he says, my favourite memory was the time we did Dancing in the Street together. We had to record the song and the film uh, all in one day we walked straight into the studio onto the set to the video at the end of the day we were saying see it can be done uh, why are we spending all these years in the studio we enjoyed camping it up the video is hilarious to watch it was the only time we really collaborated on anything yeah. which is really stupid when you think about it that's his words not mine yeah okay <laughs> okay glad you mentioned that also the video was critiqued wasn't it famously on an episode of family guy have you seen oh, that one? No, I oh, haven't. It's great. It's great. Uh, later on, um, this is uh, Jagger, of course, still talking. David bought a house in Mustique, where I have a place, and we used to hang out in the West Indies. David was so relaxed there and so kind to everyone. He did a lot of work making healthcare better for local people. I was doing school charity work, and he'd come with me there and do story time with the local kids. It was really sweet. Wow, you see, I'd never heard that before. And so uh, Mick Jagger continues, I know David stopped touring around 2004 after having some health problems. After that, he kind of vanished, both from my life and the stage, so to speak, until he came back with an album that was a very interesting piece. It's really sad when somebody leaves you and you haven't spoken to them for a long while. 
you wish you'd done this, you wish you'd done that. But that's what happens. Strange things happen in life. Yeah, and still on, uh, you know, a sort of Rolling Stones theme with Bowie, as told to uh, journalist Patrick Doyle, this is Charlie Watts saying that it wouldn't bother him if the Rolling Stones broke up, also revealing that he didn't think Bowie was much a, was a musical genius at all. Uh, Watts said he was a lovely guy and he wrote a couple of good songs. <laughs> well, let's face it, he's a jazz head, isn't he? What does yeah. he know? Yeah, well, nothing. J is for Junior's Eyes. Now, this is a mythical beast to me, really. I mean, you know, as I was growing up and, and, and concentrating on Bowie and reading about Bowie, this was a name that used to spring up all the time, but they had no real profile. No. Uh, so, in short, Junior's Eyes, origin, London, England, genres, progressive rock, psychedelic rock, folk rock, years active, 1968 to 1970, labels, regal xonophone, associated acts, David Bowie, Pink Fairies, Quiver. Yeah. Okay, and past members, Mick Wayne, John Candy Carr, John Honk Lodge, Steve Chapman, Graham Grom Kelly, John Redfern, John Cambridge, and Tim Renwick. Yeah, okay. And there are people in there that David Bowie fans will recognise. Definitely. So Junior's Eyes, a British group led by Mick Wayne, who was born in uh, Kingston-upon-Hull, died in June 1994, recorded one album, and they're notable for acting as Bowie's backing band during 1969. Yeah, so uh, Mick Wayne's first group was called The Outsiders with Jimmy Page on guitar. Okay, and after recording one single for Decca Records in 1965, The Outsiders broke up the following year, at which point Wayne joined Hull musicians, a Hullabaloos, replacing Ricky Knight briefly before they too broke up. So he made an attempt to form a new lineup in Hull with the drummer John Cambridge, but soon returned to London. Cambridge later joined uh, Hull band The Rats with guitarist Mick Ronson. Uh, folkloric, that, wasn't it? Wayne next joined the Bunch of Fives, which included ex Pretty Things drummer Viv Prince uh, during 1966, and this band evolved into The Tickle. Great name. There's Gotta a band stop name. you there, mate. The Tickle. The Tickle, with band names Mick Wayne, obviously. Mick Docker on vocals, Dave Williams on keyboards, Richard Dowling on bass, and John Beckerman on drums. And The Tickle's only single, Subway, Smokey Pokey's World. <laughs> uh, Come on. I mean, I've got to hear this now. Yes. It's appeared on many psychedelic compilation albums, <laughs> including Acid Drops, Space Dust, and Flying Saucers. I've got that. That's a great uh, a Psychedelic confection. I've got that, so right, I need to check yeah. that out. Right, let's have a listen. Okay, so let's get on to Junior's Eyes. After the breakup of the tickle, Mick Wayne formed Junior's Eyes in early '68, initially with drummer John Candy Carr and then with John Honk Lodge, who previously played with the Graham Bond organization uh, on bass and also Steve Chapman on drums. They recorded a debut single with the help of Rick Waitman. He was everywhere, Rick Waitman. He were. And producer Tony Visconti. Right, okay, so the trio added singer Graham Grom Kelly and briefly organist John Redfern in late 1968 and began began work on an album, Battersea Power Station, which was released in June 1969. We're not making this up, are we, Bob? No. Definitely not. The same month, Mick Wayne and Rick Wakeman were amongst the guest musicians who recorded Davey Bowie's breakthrough hit, Space Oddity. Of course. So, for the follow-up Space Oddity album, it was recorded between June and September of 1969. Bowie and producer Visconti were backed by a new lineup of Junior's Eyes, which were made up of Mick Wayne on guitar, John Lodge on bass, John Cambridge on drums, and Tin Renwick on guitar, flute, and recorder. Woo! So the same band backed David Bowie on the Dave Lee Travis show session on the uh, October of 1969 and without Wayne on the B-side conversation piece which was recorded in the January of 1970. 
Wayne had also helped record James Taylor's debut album between July and October 1968, and Honk had played on the album Think Pink on the track Rock and Roll the Joint by Pretty Things drummer Twink in July 1969. Strangely poetic, that, wasn't it? Mm. Uh, these recording sessions for other people disrupted the progress of Junie's Eyes, and the new lineup recorded only one single that played the final gig on the 3rd of February 1970, supporting Bowie. It was at this gig that Cambridge introduced Bowie to his former Rats bandmate, Mick Ronson, of course, and within days, Cambridge. Cambridge, Ronson and Visconti was playing bass were Bowie's new backing band, The Hype. Uh, but Cambridge left at the end of March. He did, yeah. So the later careers, Honk and Rennick uh, formed Quiver, but Honk soon left, uh, you know, revolving door policy mm. and all that, uh, briefly joining ex-Pink Fairies drummer Twink uh, in the last-minute put-together boogie band in Cambridge. Uh, Rennick continued with the band, which later joined up with Sutherland Brothers, and he later recorded with Mike and the Mechanics and both Roger Waters and the Davy Gilmore-led Pink Floyd. Mm. So obviously a, a great musician, as well as releasing a number of solo albums. Mick Wayne, meanwhile, left for the States after Junior's Eyes to back Joe Cocker and spent a few years doing session work there before coming back to London in 1972. OK, so let's look at the Bowie timeline. The 12th of March, 1968, Bowie records London by Tatar and In the Heat of the Morning with a guitarist called Mick Wayne. He has just formed his own band, Junior's Eyes. Over the next few months, Bowie appears on the same bill as Junior's Eyes at various gigs. Definitely. It's 20th of June now, 1969, the recording of Space Oddity, the song with Mick Wayne on lead guitar, but he didn't have his own guitar on the day apparently and he didn't like uh, the replacement he'd been given saying it kept going out of June that was always my excuse yeah August 1969 Junior's Eyes booked to appear at the legendary free festival but didn't Turn up like John Peel, actually. Yeah, Let Me Sleep Beside You and Janine recorded for the uh, Dave Lee Travis show as David Bowie and Junior's Eyes on the 20th of October 1969. Neither track appeared in the programme that was actually broadcast uh, a week later. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. J is for Elton John. So in October 1966, Bowie made his first solo appearance at the opening of the Shoreline Club, which billed itself as a marquee at Bognor Regis. Okay. Uh, also on the bill is Long John Baldry and Bluesology, featuring Reginald Dwight on keyboards. Yeah, so Elton was a fan of Space Oddity when it came out in 69. He went on to work with both producer Gus Dudgeon and the string arranger, Paul Bookmaster. Less than six months later, uh, Elton John was at Trident Studios recording his second album, just called Elton John, with both of those guys. He was. So January 1971, Bowie was interviewed by a radio station in Philadelphia, during which, for some unknown reason, the interviewer told him that Elton John's <laughs> real name was Reg Dwight. Really? I didn't know that. Stone me, oh, said what, Bowie. <laughs> what news? Uh, just after Starman came out, Elton released Rocket Man, which was based, obviously, on a very similar theme here, mm. although Bowie couldn't claim to have cornered the market in rock songs about astronauts in space. Actually, he probably could, couldn't yeah, he? Well, possibly. He was supposedly pretty annoyed at the whole timing of it, and, of course, it had been produced by Gus Dudgeon, who'd done Space Oddity. Yeah, bit, bit of a coincidence, mm. you'd have to say. So Dudgeon stated later, I know Rocket Man wasn't influenced by Space Oddity. I can remember it being written. It took about half an hour, one morning, at breakfast in France. It's important to remember that Elton John doesn't write his lyrics. So that is a good point. point. It really is. Uh, Dudgeon, of course, had also produced, while we're on the space theme here, I'm the Urban Spaceman, ain't it, by the Bonzos? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, DJ Jeff Dexter, meanwhile, traced the beginning of Glitter Rock down to parties that were held at the home of society hostess Chalita Secunda, who was fashion editor at Nova magazine at the time. Uh, Dexter said, she always had David, Mark Boland and Reg 
Elton John, uh, over at her place. She wore glitter herself, and one day she put glitter on Mark. David was there and said, I want some, and Reg had some too. Wow, that is... Mm, you have to wonder, don't yeah, you, really? I mean, yeah. It often gets talked about, when did glam start? And it's often put down to the hype show. But, sure. Uh, that's, that's, yeah, that's an interesting one, definitely. By May 1972, Rocket Man was in the top ten, while Starman still hadn't taken off, pardon the pun. Bowie recorded a BBC session that month, during which he played Space Oddity and included an ironic... Oh, Rocket Man in the Ooh, bridge. Okay. In August that year, 72, Elton was a guest at Bowie and the Spiders' Rainbow gig in London. Mick Rock, who'd filmed the rehearsals and some of the shows, there were two of them, of course, uh, interviewed Elton for the film he was making, provisionally called Ziggy Across the Rainbow. And in a September 1972 issue of The Enemy, Elton John said, I heard Mott the Hoople's single on the radio one morning and thought it was tremendous, so I phoned Bowie up and invited him out for a meal. Yeah, he later elaborated on this in an interview with Rolling Stone. I first met David when I took him out to dinner when he was Ziggy Stardust. We had a nice time. He was with Angie and I was with Tony King, who's now with Rocket Records. And all I remember is his horrible manager walking in with half the cast of Jesus Christ Superstar. They all had dinner and left me to pay the bill. Uh, King, incidentally, was a close associate of John Lennon's. Yeah, a month later, Bowie and Elton were both staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel in California. Well, both were on tour there. Uh, Bowie took, I love this, Bowie took afternoon tea with Elton at his exclusive bungalow. I mean, that couldn't get more English than that. Could you? Nope. English abroad. Elton was also a fellow guest on Russell Harty Plus Pop in January 73 when Bowie and the Spiders did Drive In Saturday and Bowie did a solo version of uh, My Death by Jacques Brel. Yeah, okay. And so from The Independent, February 2016, Sir Elton John has revealed that he and David Bowie fell out 40 years ago and never managed to salvage their friendship. Sad, really, isn't it? Mm. Uh, After Bowie calls Sir Elton rock and roll's token queen in an interview with Rolling Stone in the 1970s, their companionship came to an abrupt end. Yeah, so speaking to the Evening Standard, uh, the legendary 68-year-old singer revisited the feud. Uh, David and I, said Elton, were not the best of friends towards the end. We started out being really good friends. We used to hang out together with Mark Boland going to gay clubs, but I think we just drifted apart. He once called me Rock and Roll's token queen in an interview with Rolling Stone, which I thought was a bit snooty. He wasn't my cup of tea. No, I wasn't his cup of tea. Right, okay. Uh, But the dignified way he handled his death, said Elton, I mean, thank God. I knew he'd had a heart attack, um, but years ago, but not about the cancer. Everyone else take note of this. Bowie couldn't have staged a better death. It was classy. Yeah, and uh, Elton John sort of on uh, hearing the news of Bowie's death, he played an extended piano version of Space Oddity in tribute during a gig at the Wilton Theatre in LA. And he told the crowd that he uh, had Bowie to thank for his collaborations with longtime producer Gus Dudgeon. The songs, he said, were very classical orientated. I didn't know who I wanted to use. Then I heard a record which blew me away. It's called Space Oddity. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. J is for John Cambridge. So, John Cambridge, a drummer active on the whole scene from the mid-60s onwards, actually, and uh, Cambridge played in a number of local bands beginning in 1965 with a Mick Wayne-led The Hullabaloos and followed by a spelling Gonks and ABC. <laughs> That's Gonks with an X, mm. isn't it? In 1967, he joined The Rats, replacing a guy called Clive Taylor, whose ranks also included Mick Ronson. Near the end of the year, The Rats recorded the album The Rise and Fall of Bernie Gripplestone and The Rats from Hull, whose title came from John Lennon's character in the film How I Won the War. In Interesting. So uh, the Rats then tried, unsuccessfully, to make a name for themselves in London. A year later, they changed the name to Treacle and recorded some more tracks. Uh, but these wouldn't see the light of day for another 30 years when they were included as bonus tracks on the CD reissue of The Rise and Fall of Bernie Gripplestone. Yeah, so at some point in 1969, Cambridge and Ronson began rehearsing with members of the Mandrakes with the intention of creating a new group that was to be called Teeth. 
these aren't great. <laughs> Treacle and teeth, come on. But the project never really got off the ground. Uh, Ronson then returned to the Rats, but Cambridge chose to join his old bandmate from the Hullabaloo's, Mick Wayne, in Junior's eyes, and he was replaced by Mick Woodywood Mansey. Uh, Mick Wayne, incidentally, had started out in the Outsiders with Jimmy Page, as mentioned. Junior's eyes' sole album, Battersea Power Station, appeared that same year, but it was their contribution to Bowie's self-titled 1969 album, later reissued as Space Oddity, and their role as a backing band for live shows that brought Junior's eyes some attention. The backing band on the album recorded between June and September 1969. We've been through this before. Mick Wayne, John Lodge, John Cambridge and Tim Renwick. Okay, and the same band, of course, including Cambridge, backed Bowie on a BBC radio session in October 69 on uh, Conversation Piece, which was the B-side of The Prettiest Star, recorded in uh, January 1970. There's a great story about John Cambridge in Kevin Cann's book, in the way he's sitting on the toilet the morning after a gig in Dunfermline in Scotland, and the band left for Glasgow without him. (laughs) So he ran to the local bus garage in a big panic, only to find he got there before the band had. They were amazed to find him there because nobody had even noticed he was missing. (laughs) Oh dear. Uh, So after Junior's eye split, Cambridge returned to Hull to enlist Mick Ronson in Bowie's next backing band, driving back to London in his Hillman Minx, and Ronson was introduced to Bowie by John Cambridge at La Chasse Club uh, on Wardour Street after a gig at the Marquee in February 1970, and they all went off to Haddon Hall afterwards. Yeah, so the quartet then became Hype, which we've covered of course. This is when they each assumed uh, superhero alter egos at gigs, so Cambridge became Cowboy Man. So February 1970, they all drove up to Hull for a few days, and John Cambridge got some of his mates to give Bowie's car a service. <laughs> More detail than you need, possibly. <laughs> uh, but this is nice. David and Angie stayed at Cambridge's dad's house in West Hull, yeah. where they used the phone to get in touch with promoters and start bookings. Oh, how nice. On the 20th of March 1970, Cambridge was one of the witnesses to Bowie's marriage to Angie at Bromley Register Office. Uh, of course, when he went in to sign the register, Bowie's uninvited mother jumped in ahead of him and signed it instead. Well documented, pardon the pun. So, just over a fortnight later, Bowie told Cambridge that he was no longer needed in the band. And Cambridge said, I was painting the ceiling when I heard Angie say to David, you've got to tell him, you've got to tell him now. So uh, Bowie reluctantly told him they were after a new drummer because they wanted someone who could also help with the song arrangements. Oh, so the following morning, sadly, he got into his Hillman Minx, borrowed five quid off Bowie for petrol and drove back to Hull. A few weeks later, Tony Visconti wrote to Cambridge telling him what was happening at Haddon Hall and also mentioning that that it says here, this is a quote, David's pretty uptight for bread at the moment, so could you send him what you owe him from that cheque? Oh, Ooh. so years later when Bowie and Cambridge met backstage after a Tim Machine gig in Bradford in 1989, uh, Cambridge just dropped by and said, I'm come to give you your £5 oh, back. Nice. <laughs> OK. And then he joined the Mandrakes, didn't he? His replacement in hype, as mentioned, Woody Woodmancy, later played in a band called Dib Cochran and the Earwigs. <laughs> with whom he recorded the track Oh Baby in 1970 and another outfit called It's Easy. Right, OK. A new interview, John Cambridge, yeah. didn't you? 2014. Yeah, so some excerpts here. So this is uh, talking about, we were mainly talking about, well, obviously time in the band, of course we were, but hype, you know, playing the Roundhouse in 1970 and the start of glam rock and all that stuff. So this is John Cambridge uh, saying, in some Bowie documentaries, Woody and Mick are saying that they never wanted to put the makeup on when they were the spiders. Well, that happened when we were doing the hype. Bowie was putting makeup on and me and Mick were going, there's no way I'm putting makeup on because I was dressed as a cowboy, I'd be going, well, cowboys don't wear makeup, unless you're Roy Rogers. <laughs> That's a very good point. 
Uh, and a great question uh, that you put to him, Bobbert. Do you still have your outfit from the hype? And he said, uh, I've still got the hat, though it's a bit squashed now. It's been up in the loft. It was only a cheap one. I remember meeting Visconti at his offices in Oxford Street and we were crossing the road together, maybe on the way to get in a tube back to Beckenham, and we saw this hat in an army and navy kind of store. There was a cowboy hat in the window next to these other things. Come on, we'll get that. He just went in and bought it. So there's no great plan, is there? Just well, obviously not. Opportunism. I asked him also, what do you remember the audience at the second hype gig at the Roundhouse? He said, here's another thing that people get wrong. In uh, Tony's book, he says the audience were all sort of shouting, get off, and everything else, lots of disparaging stuff. Well, I don't remember that. To me, it was like when you see the film of Woodstock where everybody's got headbands on and they're all dancing about, waving their arms and stoned out of their heads. The audience was just like that, completely stoned, and I don't think there would have been a heckle-type audience anyhow. Right, OK. You went on to ask him what's your presiding memory of that second Roundhouse show, of which he says, my wife Angie came with me and another friend from Hull. To me, it was like, what time are we on? Nine o'clock? Right then. And I went to the pub. So I don't think I saw Genesis or anyone else. I'd roll back in at a quarter to and go to the dressing room. Another thing is that all the clothes were supposed to have been stolen. I can't even remember that. Going back to Haddon Hall. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Tony would have had to come home in his hype man suit. It would have been like something from Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> Uh, having played on Bowie's first album, I asked him, did you entertain the idea it might be a long-term thing? He said, not at all. He said, when Junior's eyes finished with him, I thought, that's it, I'm going home to Hull next week. I only stayed down there in London because he was doing that. At that time, Bowie was more Bob Dylan-ish. He wasn't really heavy. It was only when Mick joined that he turned into something else. He said, even when we did the hype gigs, we'd do a couple of covers. I always remember we did Instant Karma by the Plastic Ono Band and Let's Work Together by Canned Heat, as both of them were in the charts in 1970. So obviously felt like they had to do some chart material just to satisfy the audience. And before we uh, leave this particular part of the uh, series, uh, the hat, I'm, mm. I'm interested in the hat, Bob. Has he still got it then? Well, yeah? he's still got it. So as mentioned, you know, it's up there in his loft and I said, well, there's any chance, John, if, you, if you're okay doing that, could you go up and just maybe get it down and could I see it? So he uh, very, very kindly, either he or he got his wife to go up there and get this hat down. And so I have a photograph of him posing with the original cowboy man hat and I will try and put it onto social media if he'll let me. I'm sure he will. J is for Jimi Hendrix. So the Jimi Hendrix experience formed in London October 1966. By December that year, Disc and Music Echo was asking, are these the 1967 chart busters? And amongst the names were Hendrix and David Bowie. Right. Uh, drummer Mitch Mitchell had previously played in the Riot Squad, who'd formed in 1964, and were initially managed by the well-known impresario Larry Page. Yeah, so Bowie briefly performed and recorded with the Riot Squad in the spring of 1967. On the 7th of May that year, he and his buzz Bandmates Deck Fernley and John Eager, plus the girlfriends, went to see Jimi Hendrix Experience at the Savile Theatre in London. Apparently, only Bowie and John Eager actually thought they were any good. I wonder if that's the uh, show where Jimi Hendrix played the whole of Sgt Pepper, all that stuff. It's, a, it's got to be, hasn't it, I think. Is it? Uh, hmm. Bowie went backstage later because his friends in the Scottish band 123 had been the support act that night. Organist Billy Ritchie remembered later, we shared our dressing room with Hendrix, so they may have met. Yeah, OK, so afterwards, Bowie wrote a letter to Record Mirror criticising them for what he felt was an unfair comparison between 123 and Jimi Hendrix in their review of the show. Record Mirror published it under the headline Bowie, the 19-year-old epistle writer. <laughs> Ooh! <laughs> Get you. So one of the things Bowie wrote was, like a can of knowledgeable windoline. Uh, he, referring to the reviewer Derek Boltwood, wiped out the truth and wiped off the cloud of mystery surrounding Jimi out-of-sight Hendrix at 123. Right, OK. And Mary Finnegan, who was uh, briefly Bowie's landlady and lover, as we know, 
know, uh, in Beckenham in 1969, remembered of their first get-together. Uh, after a spliff and a nice dinner, Davy created a nest of cushions on the floor of his room, which he settled me onto and put the speakers of the stereo close to my ears. He played me a selection of his favourite musical influences, Jacques Brel and Jimi Hendrix, snuggled up, stoned and together. Inevitably, one move led to another. Oh, you mean they turned the records over? Yeah, yeah that's it, yeah. yeah. During the Ziggy era... Probably had some Eccles cakes oh, as yeah, well. Oh, yeah, of course. Tea, yeah. more tea. Uh, during the Ziggy era, Mick Ronson had been emulating Hendrix by playing guitar with his teeth, but we suggested taking it a stage further, which is how the whole, you know, simulated fellatio idea came about during that tour, as captured in Mick Rock's famous photo. Hendrix may have been referenced in the song Ziggy Stardust. He played it left hand, but made it too far. And that's often been speculated, hasn't it? by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... The Conrads, Ken Scott, Hanif Qureshi. 